tampering that is going around, has gone around for years yeah. within the NBA. And I will say this as a player, the fact that deals are being reported during free agency and being done right when free agency starts means that there had to be some table talk. Players really respect knowledge. That's something that I've, I've become accustomed to as a college athlete and as an NBA player. I've, I've gravitated towards our video coordinator. I've, I've gravitated towards a lot of different people based on their knowledge and, and how they've been able to improve my day-to-day, -day, not only life on the court, but off the court. I'm a loyal person. I don't have the stomach for uncertainty at times. I don't like it. I like to, to know what I'm getting myself into. I like to be comfortable in a certain situation. I knew my surroundings. Lehigh took a chance on me. They rolled the dice on a, on a small kid from Canton, Ohio, and they were good to me. So I wanted to reward them by staying. Welcome to the Mean Joe Green episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 75. Back in New York, sitting across from Mr. Schultz himself. And we have a lot to discuss. There's a lot that's happening across the NBA. There's a lot that's happening across the NFL. There's a lot that's happening in this world in general, but it's only right that we first start with the tampering that is going around, has gone around for years yeah. within the NBA. And I will say this as a player, I'm not going to snitch on other teams, other situations, but the fact that deals are being reported during free agency and being done right when free agency starts means that there had to be some table talk. It's 12.01. I mean, it's every year you, you hear about it, 12.01. These deals are getting done behind closed doors weeks in advance sometimes. And the reason that it continues to happen is because the penalty is so meek. In other words, they have not, the NBA has not changed the penalty um, despite the fact that we've seen a 600% increase in league revenue and an 1,100% increase in franchise value since these fines were last touched in 1996. Bill Clinton was in office in 1996. That's how long it's been. So you have these teams making an astronomical amount of money, the owners making incredible dollars, and yet we don't have any strong penalty against tampering. It's almost like it's frowned upon. It's almost like it doesn't really matter because we know what's going on and it doesn't, it doesn't impact the league in a negative way. I think it's a big issue. And I think the fact that finally Adam Silver is introducing a $10 million fine for teams. Um, and it will be voted on by the way, this week by the board of governors. I think that's a positive because it will allow, to me, more of a fair playing field and also give just a different perspective to players, free agents, um, to teams, and to fans who are saying, you know, what what can we really trust is actually happening if, if, if there's no real penalty, we know it's going to happen. Yeah, I think it's hard to really crack down on it. You can find, you can slap a risk, but how do you truly know who's talking behind closed doors unless someone leaks the information? Um, looking at historically what's happened in a lot of situations when free agents potentially sign somewhere, unless the agent, player, or organization leaks it um, to a woge, to someone who has potential to put it out mm -hmm. uh, to the media, how does one even know? If they, if, if they talk before free agency starts, let's hypothetically say free agency starts July 1 and they start talking in June, but they don't release it to the public and they just wait till July 3rd to settle the deal, even though it's been in place for a long time. No one would truly know what happened behind closed doors. So I think it's it's hard to really track tampering unless someone snitches, unless there's someone blowing the whistle. You'll truly never know what's going on behind closed doors. You'll just assume that it's happening. And I think the $10 million fine looks great on paper, but $10 million to someone whose franchise is worth $3 billion, to someone who is probably in that five to $40 billion range, depending on the owner, $10 million is a slap on the wrist. If it gives you a chance to get a star player to change your franchise, you're willing to risk that $10 million because if you can win a championship, you're making that off of one playoff game alone. Players talk to each other all the time, and that's fine. The issue is when a team, a general manager, an owner, reaches out to the player and says, and this, I, I've heard, CJ, that this even happens like during the season, especially as you're looking, you talked about May, like these discussions are already taking place. I don't know how you necessarily enforce it. I'm just saying in, increasing the fine from $50,000, for example, to $10 million, that's going to at least dissuade some people 
against tampering. It's going to make some some type of a positive impact to say, please don't do this. You're actually damaging the league. I think... Oh, you disagree then completely. No, no, I agree with you. I think there's definitely tampering going around. Definitely the punishments aren't harsh enough. And people will continue to do it until they are more harsh or they're either taking away draft picks, conducting audits, doing things of that nature to really investigate and find out because the risk is is not that bad compared to the reward. You look at potential free agents in 2020. Giannis. Giannis rings bells, right? The Bucks have already come out and said they're going to offer him the max. Teams are already trying to sign siblings. Right. Right. You see what I'm saying? Costas, there are ways to yeah. get around tampering right. Right. when you sign the younger brother. Right. It's you know? kind of like in college basketball where you see a top 10 recruit, his uncle – gets hired as an assistant coach. Exactly. So there are ways to get around tampering, understanding that now when Giannis goes to L.A., where is he going to work out at? With his brother, probably. <laughs> at the facility. At the facility. So there are ways to get around it, but I think the, the, the bigger issue here is that there's a lot of stuff going on behind closed doors. You have GMs of certain teams going to games and courting players during the regular season. We yeah. heard about it, the yeah. pursuit of Kawhi yeah. Leonard last year, to where it's technically allowed. You're allowed to go see other teams play. But it just so happens that your GM, your president, your director of basketball ops may be going to watch a team, and you may not even be in that city, and they may not even have a college athlete at a university that's considered to be a first-round pick. Well, I always say that when it comes down to it, you know, we hear about these elaborate pitches from GMs or ownership. You know, come to our city and they, and and they show what the what you can mean to the franchise and the and all the fans and and it's all glorious but what really matters oftentimes to me see is what i hear is is the players saying here's how it actually is in this organization here's how we're treated um here's how we're valued or not valued what's interesting about the new tampering proposition is that it will prohibit players from inducing other players under contract to request trades now that is way different than what we've had in other words you're now saying players are there's still players can still talk to one another, but in terms of like saying I don't want to get a trade, yeah, that if that's that's where things can really change because players are always talking to one another. We see, we know the NBA is a brotherhood; guys are close. These conversations happen all the time. But now, if you're making those illegal, uh, I think that could be a, a problem potentially um, avoided, or maybe it'll make it worse. It could be a problem, but as a player. We know about stuff before it happens, right. before it comes to light. And I don't think there's a way for you to track that because if Paul George is unhappy and he tells Kawhi Leonard that he's unhappy, right. Kawhi ain't saying nothing. He's not telling anyone besides his organization right. or the organization he wants to go to. Right. So there's certain guys in the league that can keep a secret, can keep it on the low and understand that All right, this is going to play out the way it plays out. You know what I mean? There, yeah. There's situations to where I've had guys – come to me and ask me about our team, ask me about our organization. What's it like? What is there to do in Portland? Where do you live? Inquire about it. Not a free agent. Could potentially come, could potentially be traded for, things of that nature. But I just tell them like it is. Like you said before, the best advice, the best recruiter is a player who's already in the situation knows what it's like. And if someone is truly invested in recruiting, they can serve as the liaison. They can recruit on behalf of the organization because it's not tampering. What's the worst case scenario for this new, this new proposition? If it gets voted on by the board, of the worst case is that they try to conduct audits, which means they're trying right. to dive into people's text messages, emails, things of that nature. And that's when it gets sticky because right. I have group chats, I have friendships with players on other teams. Either they were teammates, past teammates, or just friends from college, and we talk about all sorts of stuff. That doesn't mean that I'm trying to get people to leave their their teams or leave their deals, but if they express interest or or just venting because you're in a different situation, different team, they may be venting to you. That's that's appropriate. It's just like the working world. Um, you have competitors that are friends. They work for different agencies, right. different right. types of organizations, situations. They're friends, and you may go vent to your friend and ask them what his situation is like or her situation is like. And if you decide to leave your situation, that's because you decided to leave. It's not like they forced you to do it. But also, these are healthy conversations that happen, right? Right. And if you take away those conversations, or let's just say you you, you do an audit and you find it, it might not have happened that anything went wrong, but you could paint a picture very easily of this is a group chat between players and different teams. Here's what's being said. 
they're breaking the rules. It, it, that, that's okay. I, that's where I can see it's it's really an issue. I mean, it, it becomes like, what do we do? Because I don't know. I'm not sure the league knows exactly what it wants out of this tampering or anti-tampering. I know they want to avoid it. That's never going to happen. But if they can limit it, maybe that's the goal to limit it. But I think what's really dicey is when you start to talk about players. And if you're if players are forced to give away phones or their text messages, their whatever, that's these are sa- these are sacred conversations that happen. And like you said, these happen in other in other you know outside of pro sports. But obviously, that's a totally different ballgame. Like you know, people event all the time, and nobody cares. In the NBA, when you're talking about this kind of money, people care. Yeah, you can't even go on Twitter and tweet something. It's misconstrued right. or looked at sideways. If you're happy, if you're not happy, if you're enjoying a different city, maybe you enjoy another city. And you're like, I really love such and right. such. I love Toronto because the food is great and it reminds me of New York. He's not happy. He wants to go to Toronto. He wants to be a Raptor. Right. Or right. if a guy changes his bio, Jamal Adams from the Jets changed his bio. And unfollowed the Jets. <laughs> yeah. wait, wait, but that, that's... When you unfollow the team you play for, that's that's a signal. But it's a right. You have a right to do those things. So I think that there's a lot of interesting things going on behind the scenes. And obviously, we talked about Giannis. The Bucks said they're going to offer him a max, which is a no-brainer. I guess the question for us is, do you think he signs it in stays? Or do you think do. he goes where the grass could or could yeah. may or may not be greener? So I think Giannis is the kind of superstar that – because of his background, the fact that he is, um, I think he's a very loyal guy. I don't think he needs or seeks the spotlight. There was a really good piece on 60 Minutes done about a year ago about how Giannis in the city of Milwaukee have embraced one another and how Giannis has really helped put the city back on the map. And I think there is a part of Giannis that will always want to be in L.A. or New York, but I think the the vast majority of him will always prefer where he can be a big fish in a small pond and where he doesn't need to have all of the media around him um, and all of the glitz and glamour of, let's say, a city like L.A. Uh, I've spent some time with the Bucks. I spent some time with the general manager, John Horst. The way that they treat Giannis, he's not going to get treated better anywhere else. The fact that they have a championship contender, that alone tells me, with a brand new arena, that they're in a great position to extend them. You don't think other organizations would worship Giannis the same way? Oh, but maybe, I'm just saying, it's not going to be better. Oh, okay. Right. Saying the treatment might not be better, but the city, on the other hand. Yeah, but he's not the that The players kind of- around him, on the other hand. I'm just, I'm just being the devil's advocate right now. But don't you think there's that Giannis... Because of the fact that he's helped resurrect this franchise, don't you think that he'll be so much more like he would be vindicated if he wins if he wins a championship in Milwaukee and he makes them a perennial power, as opposed to like where he's the number one guy, as opposed to going somewhere else. He just doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that's going to leave to be a follower. But he could win one there and then bounce. Right. It's something that he could consider. But I think you're right. I think Giannis ends up staying. He seems like a very loyal guy who's not wowed, wooed, wowed, not impressed wooed. by small things. Right. Those things don't right. impress him. Talking about a guy who turned down a chance to be in Space Jam yeah. too, yeah. because he didn't want to work out. Right. That's, this is what I'm saying. He doesn't need that. The glitz, the glamour, the Hollywood, the CJ, the, the stuff that we see you do. No. See, you're and you're very similar to Giannis in that sense where you you go about your work and uh, you know obviously he I'm not saying he doesn't do ads he's obviously has the huge Hulu ad you know he's right. a big part of like he he's taking advantage of it but he's doing it in a practical fashion I don't like I don't I never criticize players or I really try not to I should say when they leave in free agency that that's your right um, you know obviously there's been a ton of we've seen the past few years a ton of marquee blue chip guys leave whether it's LeBron or Kevin Durant uh, now Kyrie Irving. Um, and I think everybody has their own agenda, and and that's okay. I'm just saying with Giannis, I would be very surprised if he left, given the relationships he's built with not only the organization but the city. And when I, I I spent three days in Milwaukee, CJ, and it's not a long period of time, but there is a connection that he has and he feels there that's legitimate. And I don't know if that can be replicated anywhere else because he's not going to have anywhere else where he was homegrown. 
I agree with you. I think he stays, but I think he does consider leaving at some point in his career because you you always think about, you know, what it's like on the other side, what it would be like on the other side. So I think at some point in his career, he may consider it. That doesn't mean he'll act on it, but it may cross his mind, especially now that one of his siblings is there and can give him an idea of what it's like. I think it should, though. I mean, these are healthy conversations with, and also healthy thoughts to have of like, let me, yeah, pros and cons, just like anything else in life. Again, with because it's pro sports, because it's this kind of money, it, it's amplified, and and people are going to criticize. Like, think about this, CJ. If if it's like if I if I left ESPN and went somewhere else, no, no nobody would care. They'd be like, oh, he got another job. But if you left Portland or if Giannis left Milwaukee, there's a million people going to have a million reactions. They're going to hate you. They're going to love you. The fact that you can process this as an NBA athlete and say, this is my future. Here's what I want, what I don't want. I think it's very important and it's very hard, but only you know what's best for you. That's true. I agree with you. And I think it's just all relative. And that's something to where I like to say a good problem. When you're wanted by a lot of different people and in a lot of different situations, it's a good problem. It means you have a uh, unique skill that's available and everybody wants it. So you have to just kind of choose wisely and figure out what you value, figure out what you are comfortable with being a part of and kind of act on it. But Well, I was just – can I interrupt you? Is that, is that okay? When you were at Lehigh, your conference player of the year as a freshman, you could have transferred anywhere you wanted – and we've talked about this a little bit. You thought about it. What ultimately kept you there, and why Why did you feel like you needed to stay? I'm a loyal person, um, first and foremost. I don't have the stomach for uncertainty at times. I don't like it. I like to, to know what I'm getting myself into. I like to be comfortable in a certain situation. I knew my surroundings. Lehigh took a chance on me. They rolled the dice on a, on a small kid from Canton, Ohio, and they were good to me. So I wanted to reward them by staying, by getting my degree from a prestigious university. Um, I enjoyed being around my teammates. I enjoyed the staff. Um, people that recruited me were still there at the time. They ended up leaving, but they were still there at the time. And um, it was just a Perfect situation. I had the blueprint. Steph Curry was the blueprint. I had Jimmy was in college at that time. I had seen Eric Maynard. I'm seeing all these guys, um, George Hill, who are performing at the mid-major level and potentially going pro. Um, it was like, all right, just follow this. Follow that. He did this. I can I can be successful doing this. And then the second part is that the only school I would have transferred to was North Carolina because I loved North Carolina growing up. Big Michael Jordan fan. Big Loved the baby blue. Loved everything about it. So that's the only school I would have transferred to. But according to the transfer rules, you have to sit out a year. Right. That was my next thing. And I would you have done that? My momentum, I just averaged 19 points a game. Right. I went to the tournament. I played against Kansas. I got to see what it was like to play against elite NBA players. And I just felt like, okay, I got three more years to get myself ready to be able to play at this level consistently every night. I can do that here. Did I think about what life would be like at North Carolina? Absolutely. More so off the court. Off the court, right. the— Obviously, off the court, the life, being on TV every night, the facilities, the exposure. But I was like, in my head, you're going to be good enough to where people will come watch you at a school that has 4,600 people. Figure out a way to get so good to where they got to put you on TV. They got to recognize you as the, uh, the elite of the elites. People from North Carolina, players from those big schools, they'll be looking at you like, who is this kid? Because you're going to be mentioned with them. And that's kind of my mindset. I wanted to put Lehigh on the map. And uh, if I would have left, I would have never been able to do that. And um, I'm glad I stayed. But it did cross my mind. It did. Did you ever worry that because you weren't playing against, obviously you were in the tournament, but for the most part you weren't playing against you know, real NBA players, did you ever think that that could come back and, and haunt you? I wasn't worried about it at all because I know who I am as a player. I understood the work ethic and what it's like to play in the NBA. I had never done it, but people around me did it. Costa Kufis was in the NBA coming from Glen Oak. He played at Ohio State, but I worked out with him. I seen how he worked. I seen how he approached the game, and I knew that the things I were doing at night Early in the morning, it would it would make up for the lack of competition I'm playing against okay. because my skill set would be so versatile that if you can make shots, you can make shots, and if you can create so much space to where it's easy to get a shot yeah. off, and like even if they're more athletic, they're going to close the gap a little bit, but I'm still getting space. It might be a little bit harder to finish around the basket, but you can't block my floater. So there was things that I was able to do strategically to get ready for that lack of, 
he's not playing against elite competition. Right. And then when I played against elite competition, I was like, okay, this is the game I got to go off. I circled him. Baylor, 36. Michigan State. Michigan State. We almost beat him. You know what I'm saying? There was games I would circle, like, got to be ready for this one. No matter how I play against Lafayette. You're not going to have that many opportunities. Not going to have this opportunity yeah. again. And then my thought process was whatever it takes, get to the tournament as many times as possible because that's more looks by millions of viewers. Right. Millions of viewers, they don't watch anything until the tournament starts. Once the tournament starts, you might be terrible all year. You have one great game in the tournament, and they know who you are off of one great game. So I had a resume that said, this is what he does consistently. This is what he does in big games. It's like, good player, big Great games, player. he really shows up. Great player. It's interesting. I remember, the, I, think, I don't think you've told this story on, on the show. When, when you guys beat Duke, you were more surprised that you lost to Xavier than that you beat Duke. And you told your family... Pick us to go to the Sweet 16 because we're not beating Baylor. Right. But we're going to beat Duke and Xavier. Yeah, I had us losing in the Sweet 16 to Baylor. I used to actually told my mom, I told my brother. I was like, go ahead and, yeah. We're going to beat Duke. Uh, we'll beat Xavier. You were, you were up huge on Xavier, 18, I think. Yeah, I picked up my third foul on the charge. But yeah, I thought for sure, I was like, we're going to beat Duke. I'll keep the game close and I'll be able to win it in the end. I was like, and I'll keep the game close against Xavier. We'll be able to win it in the end. And then Baylor's just that zone, so much athleticism. Size. They had the Heslip, they had yeah. the Dunker, Jefferson, yeah. boys with the bounce, they had Pierre, they had a lot of different weapons to where it was like, mm, not sure. But then I got to play Baylor my senior year, opening night. 36. Yeah. Where was that? In Baylor. And I was playing on a sprained ankle. I should have had 40. But it is what it is. I said, I said to Scott Drew, I said, Do you do you remember the game? And Scott, Scott Drew's one of my favorite people in, in college basketball. I said, do you remember the game when you when you played uh, C.J. McCollum? He, he goes, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I remember that game. And I said, how, how good was he? And he said, C.J. McCollum was incredible. He was incredible. <laughs> and I, I think he even said, I think he had 40-plus on us. So he had 36. Yeah. And that was the year after they played Duke in the Elite Eight, I believe. Right. Yeah, so, mm, I think they did. Du- no, we beat Duke. Oh, I'm sorry. That year, I think they they played Baylor. Beat Xavier. They, they beat Xavier, right? Okay. Yeah, they end up right. beating Xavier. But they, but anyways, the reason I bring it up because it's funny when you hear other coaches. We had Izzo on the pod, and he talked about the time where he didn't even know who you were. Uh, you, you was this your sophomore year, freshman year, junior, junior year. So he, you still hadn't had the national exposure yet, so he didn't know who you were, and you, and and then when he found out you were for, you were from Ohio. He said to his staff, why didn't we recruit this kid? Mm-hmm. It's sick the way the world works yeah. out, man. And we didn't even talk about... Yeah, what we, else we got? We didn't discuss. We discussed a low-key superstar, quiet superstar. We didn't discuss superstars who like to dance. Okay. Superstars who are high in fashion. They enjoy their fashion. They attend Fashion Week. Superstars who aren't afraid to speak out and shoot step backs and dunk on people and do things of that nature. Are you talking about a certain left-handed player? Talking about a certain left-handed player. I'm talking about Mr. Russell Westbrook. And the headline that came out this year, this year, this last week, he said, but I'm more excited to go into war postseason with somebody that is like a dog, somebody that's a killer. (laughs) Ooh-wee. For real. Sometimes, it, and this is James Harden, by the yes. way, if anybody's been living under He's Rock. referring to Russell Westbrook. And when I read it, I didn't And specifically to Chris thought, Paul. That's, that's the perception right. behind it. I have to ask him to figure out if it's true or not. But when I read it, I immediately thought, wow, I thought he was playing with a dog when Chris Paul. Like, he just had a dog on his team. I mean, not, not that Russell isn't a dog. Now you got another dog. You got Maybe you had a pit bull, yeah. and now you got a Rottweiler. I don't know. They're both dogs. But this was interesting. Interesting choice of words. When I heard this, um, I texted a few people around the league, and I said, is it safe to say that James Harden just called Chris Paul a poodle? <laughs> and the response was an overwhelming, basically, yes. And he's, and he, whereas he's saying that, you know what, Russ is more like a pit bull. You know? And I, I don't, listen, he didn't directly say Chris Paul. But I think he said all you need to know without saying anything. 
And that's the passive aggressive thing that's even almost worse. Super passive aggressive because he said a lot without saying anything. And I was confused because I've never played with him. I've never gone to battle with them. But you watch film and you know personality, you know players. And you're talking about one of the most competitive people in the NBA, Chris Paul. He's super competitive defensively, six foot, five eleven, six one, whatever they list him at. Doesn't get posted up. No. Enjoys when players try to post him up. Master in the pick and roll, mid-range assassin. If he doesn't get hurt, we're, we're, we're not even having this discussion because they probably win the finals. If they're able to outlast the Warriors, he doesn't get hurt, they end up losing in seven. They go play a Cavs team and potentially could have won a championship by now, which means this whole situation crazy. probably doesn't even occur. So it's crazy to think about, but I just thought it was an interesting choice of words considering how competitive Chris Paul is. But I think it's just a, it was a love-hate relationship. And I think looking at his relationship with Russ now, I think Daryl Morey, Morey, Morey? Morey. Morey talked about it with Chris Paul and James Harden. It was more of a mentorship friend where Chris was more like his mentor because he was older. They didn't live the same lifestyle. more peers. Him and Russ are more peers. Like they on the same level, they friends. Although Russ was considered his OG because he was older when James was on the team, there's a different type of respect level that's there to where they feel like they're more equals as opposed to one being like the parent to the son, well, so to speak. Yeah. I wonder, yeah. Chris is um, older, more mature, been yeah. in the league longer, likes things done a certain way and, and can be demonstrative. Obviously, Russell can be very demonstrative, too, as we've seen. But they're both from California. And it's one thing when someone's demonstrative that you tolerate. It's another thing when someone's demonstrative that you like and enjoy being around. You'll respond differently to it. It's like a friend telling you to do something versus someone that you just work with. How much harder is it when, when you have a friendship with somebody and things start to go awry, though, that you, you're that close with somebody that then you have to have these difficult conversations. Isn't that almost harder or is it, is it easier because of the pre-existing relationship? I think when you have a, a certain level of respect for someone, you're able to that trumps. Yeah, that trumps right. everything okay. because you respect them to the core as a person. You respect them. You may not like what they're saying, but because of the relationship you have with them, because of how well you know them, you're going to roll with it. You may disagree. You may have some words for it or whatever to kind of get through the situation. But... You're going to figure out a way to coexist. But when you don't really like somebody and they say something or do something that rubs you the wrong way, it's going to completely change your outlook on them, how you think about them, how you view them, how you coexist with them. And I think that's the difference between a lot of teams and a lot of people in the working world. There's coworkers that you really like and there's coworkers that you just coexist with because you have to. And then there's coworkers that are somewhere in the middle where, like, you're cool with, but you're not going to kick it with them afterwards. Indifferent about them. You wouldn't invite them to your wedding, right? but you might go to dinner with them if you had to. <laughs> and that's, that's what most NBA—I think most professional teams, NBA, let's just use the NBA. I think most—not everybody's uh, super tight, but you're pretty much cool, ideally— with everyone on the team, you have one, two, three guys that you kick it with the most, right? But you're not like super tight with everybody. No, it's impossible. It's impossible. Too many different personalities, too many people at different parts, parts of, of their, their career, yeah. parts of their life. You got 18 year olds, you got 34 year olds. There's no way a 19 year old and a 34 year old can really do the same stuff. Right. For one, you can't drink. There's no wineries, there's no late nights, there's no none of that happy hour, whatever the case may be, you're at a different stage or you're fresh out of college and this 34, 35-year-old, kids, kids, family, married. So the way they're living is completely different. Maybe they don't have time for video games. They got, they got daddy duty, whatever the case may be. And then you have people who are maybe around the same age but live completely different lives. Somebody might be single, somebody might not be single. So how they're living is completely different than you. And then there's people who just not on the not, same yeah. wave. Like, they're good people, you're good people, but y'all don't like to do the same stuff. And that's cool because you still coexist at work and then you go your separate ways at home. And I think people get it confused. We spend more time with our teammates than we do our family. Right. So when work is over, you gotta really like somebody to kick it with yeah. when work's over Absolutely. because I, I'm gonna see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. Yeah. I'm gonna be there till two. And then when we go on a road trip, I'm stuck with you and I'm gonna be with you for this 
six, seven, eight, nine, ten day road trip. So it's like get fuck out of here. Right. It's like you need a you need a break. No matter yeah. how much you like somebody, everybody needs a break. Think about it. Twenty four hours with somebody, or twenty hours, or eighteen hours. Especially when high pressure situations on the road, travel, sleep deprived. I mean, it makes it a lot harder when you're dealing with these circumstances as opposed to just you know nine to five. Okay. Yeah. And then take it a step further and imagine you're on the best team in the NBA and you, you're coexisting with people. Then you got the media. Then you got storylines and you got rumors. Then you got, oh, he said this, she said this. Right. Or, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about what this said? Or ah, I didn't like the way your body language was at the end of the game when you didn't get the ball. Like yeah. stuff like that to where it's like, come on, now you're just looking for something. When everything is cool, we coexist and we ain't got to be best friends. We coexist and keep it moving. But I think that's where you have those issues with certain franchises and, and organizations because it's a lot of background noise to where things could be great, but there's background noise and it, it kind of disrupts things. Winning cures a lot of it. Um, I don't know if it cures all of it, but certainly makes a massive impact, a, a really positive one. When you're losing, then this is this is when these issues come to become. This is when these issues become a huge problem. When you're losing, especially if there's preseason expectations, and you know you have multiple alpha personalities. Winning cures all, man. All it cures all. It cures all. If you're winning and you don't like somebody, but you're winning, you're not going to care. You, you're like, I don't really like them, but we winning. Who cares? I'm doing my job to the best of my ability, and they're helping us do a great job. What if, though, you're not doing a great job? What if you know you're not playing great, but the team's doing really well? That's hard. Then you have situations to where people request trades. People ask for trades. You look at Jalen Ramsey. You look at the NFL. You look at, they're watching us like, that's, what, that's all you got to do? Just... Tell him you unhappy, and then the rest of the league know you unhappy, and then people are like, "Well, if he's not unhappy, we, what what can we offer yeah. you to make you more happy?" You know what I'm saying? And it's the it's the the tide and how it's turning because people are starting to realize that life is short, man. You have to make yourself happy. You have to be selfish. People, fans, they don't like that, but in reality, we all have a right. I always say it: if you're not happy with a situation, you can voice your displeasure. At in the workplace. Depending on how valuable you are will determine right. how long your boss puts up with it. Right. As long as you're performing, they'll put up with it until they find a solution. If you're not a performer, you better be quiet and do your job. And that's why you see the star players are the ones that are speaking out, not the role players, because the role players are like, mm, I might not be happy, but I'm replaceable. I'm replaceable and I'm still providing for my families. The two big takeaways are one, it's, it's extremely difficult in life that much more difficult in, life, in in sports when you realize you are replaceable. No league in the world do you have more replaceable people than the NFL. You're hurt? No problem. We'll find the next guy. There's so many players, especially, you know, let's say running back. You know, like, we'll go out and f- on the street and we will find, we'll find, we'll sign somebody today, we'll cuss your ass. When you realize you're replaceable as an athlete, that's got to be devastating. We saw it with Eli Manning. I could see on his face, he was interviewed about him being benched for Daniel Jones. It, yes, it, it's got to be extremely difficult, especially when you're at the end of your career, you're, you know, 37 and, and you're realizing that you might have just played your last snap. That, this is extremely difficult. Second of all, the NBA has officially become the go to league, as you said, for athletes. What I mean by that is the NFL, specifically, Big-time players, Jalen Ramsey, Antonio Brown, um, Melvin Gordon, whatever. We're not happy. I'm not happy. Well, look what look at NBA players are doing. I'll just voice my displeasure, and I'm good enough where somebody's going to come out and get me, and hopefully I can make a scene enough where the team realizes they can't continue to keep me. This is a, quite a trend we're realizing now in the NFL. I mean, this never happened before. It is. And I think players are starting to realize their value, starting to understand who they are and what they can accomplish, and especially certain positions to where you're sacrificing a lot as a running back. The NBA, the NFL doesn't really value running backs the way they value certain positions because they feel like it's a serviceable job where you can find two guys to do one and, and pay both those guys less than you're paying certain players. But the Ezekiel Elliott to the world, the Melvin Gordons, Le'Veon Bell, they're starting to realize I can only take a certain amount of hits. Yeah. I need to get as much guaranteed money as possible because once you get on the wrong side of 30 in the NFL. Especially at running back. Especially at running back. They're looking for the next best version of you 
on the cheaper end. Right. Non-guaranteed deal, 850000 950000 And meanwhile, you're trying to get eight to $15 million a year. So they're trying to do what's best for them. And as a player, you have to realize your value. Know who you are. Know how good you are and what you can accomplish. But also realize that in certain situations, you can't count your eggs before they hatch. If you don't have a backup plan or if a team refuses to trade you, you better be prepared to sit out that whole year without pay and have saved because that is what could happen. Last note is, you know one position the NFL does pay? And I mean really pay? Quarterbacks. Yes, but they also love to pay corners. Jalen Ramsey is the best young cornerback in the NFL. He is a he's a monster. And he comes out and he says, well, first of all, he has a fight with Doug Marone on the sideline, the head coach. And then he comes out and says, uh, I want to be traded. He's going to play Thursday night. They play Tennessee plays Jacksonville. How combustible is this situation potentially? And when you have a player that talented, how much are the Jags going to be willing to tolerate before they just say, you know what, this is not fixable. We got to get as much as we can from 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 another team for Jalen Ramsey. They're going to trade him. It's not a matter if. It's a matter of when. They're going to find the right deal, what makes sense for the organization and the franchise, and they're going to move him because as as an owner, as a coach, as a player, as a teammate, you don't want to be around someone that doesn't want to be there. That's toxic. It's toxic. It can evolve into that. Obviously, he's a professional. He's going to go play, perform. He'll probably get an interception on Thursday, probably make a couple big probably hits. Probably play great. Make plays. Right. But at the end of the day, you know he doesn't want to be there. The team's not very good. They're in a, in a tough place right now because of injuries, because of what's happening within the organization. And I think the best thing for them to do is to find the right deal and move them. But it has to be the right deal because if it's not, he'll end up playing the whole year and then try to figure out his contract situation going forward. But I like that he spoke up because a lot of times people will just be unhappy and mope around and you don't know what's going on when you're like, I wonder what's going on. At least he was just forthright. Has he, he's been this way his whole career. He's been very he talks. He yeah. talks. Yeah, he's he not afraid to bite his tongue and say what comes to his mind. So for him to speak up and, and comment on it in a professional manner, I thought was appropriate. Although he could have probably did it behind closed doors and, and tried to maneuver a trade behind closed doors before going public. I think players now are just like, you know what, let me take That's control. That's the point, though. Those days might be over in the NFL. They just take control and go public. Look at the Browns with Odell. I mean, he didn't demand a trade, but it got so bad and toxic, they felt like we had to trade him. They traded him without telling him to Cleveland. They they traded him (laughs) there to to die. To die. And then this this dude comes out and catches an 89-yard slant, makes a sick one-handed grab. Shout out to my Browns. Last note of the the pull-up pod number 75 is um, give us a a 30-second. What was it like to see – your uh, 2019 Cleveland Browns in person for the first time Monday night. It was amazing to see this franchise, the transformation we've been able to make from a talent standpoint. I remember going to games as a kid, you know, the talent level wasn't always there, but the work ethic was. The guys wanted to win. They tried their hearts out, just didn't always execute right. And a lot of times our talent just failed us. Now we have the talent, but we have to figure out how to bring the talent together, how to continue to evolve our culture and how we can execute lack of turnovers. You discussed it on Twitter. We're up 23 to three or whatever the case may be. Quick turnaround, playing the Rams on Sunday. Why are we still passing? Run the ball, run the clock out, get your backups in, whatever you got to do so that we go into this game healthy. So there's some things we have to tighten up as an organization, as a franchise, but I like the direction we're heading. The atmosphere was great my first time. In that life? In that life. Beautiful stadium. Jets were great. Uh, the organization was Fans great. Fans were good, you said. Fans were really good. That's I great. had my flannel on over, over my Browns jacket, and then I, then I busted it out because I had field passes from the Jets, so I didn't want to be disrespectful. That's, that um, is really nice. This wasn't a Mike Scott situation with the Eagles. No, I mean, I was going to wear my jersey, right. but I wasn't going to be disrespectful because I didn't have uh, passes. That's right thing to do. So I really enjoyed it, um, Elise's first Browns game. Um, we'll be there in Cleveland. <laughs> on Sunday, Sunday night, prime time. The defending NFC champs. We are playing the defending NFC champs. And, and, and just for all your wagering folks out there, I told you to jump on Cleveland Monday night. Jump on them now against the Rams at home. There is no way in my mind they're losing this game. They're a three-point dog. As a Browns fan, I'm not going to encourage you to bet on this game. I don't be responsible for you losing money. I think this is a scheduled loss. Quick turnaround, Monday night game against the Jets. 
crazy atmosphere. Odell returns home. Now he has to go up against a very formidable defense. Offensive line is going to have their work cut out for them. Yeah. Baker's going to have to make quick reads. There's a lot we're going to have to tighten up with five, six days to do it. So I think it's a schedule loss, but I would like to see us go compete. And I think this is a winnable game for us, but I wouldn't be surprised if we lost due to the fact that we're still That's young. Fair. This is a championship caliber team and we're building towards this. That's they fair. already have that. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm just, and I, again, it, you know. I mean, we, I could be completely wrong and we could beat the brakes off of them, but based on what I've seen, we have some work to do and I think we're going to do it. Yeah, and Freddie Kitchens to close a, Loop on your point. There's there's no way that Baker should have been in the game that late. If you didn't catch the game, it was 23 to 3. Uh final drive of the game. Baker Mayfield is still in there. He actually took a sack that could have been catastrophic. There was no reason. Not only was he in the game, they were throwing the ball down the field. It was just an asinine thing to do. Um I, I don't know how you can possibly uh defend that. Yeah, it's it's tough. And and once again for our real Browns fans out there and real pull-up pod fans, it will be a dandy. This season has been terrific. A lot of quarterbacks have gone down with injuries, so wishing, wishing them nothing but the best. But stay locked into our pod. We talked about yeah. a lot. and We got a good guest next week. We have a good guest next week. And on this week's episode of the pull-up pod, we have three-time Super Bowl winner and host of the GM Shuffle podcast, Michael Lombardi. He'll be on to talk about what it's like to be a general manager in the NFL, discuss some of our Browns, and much more. So stay locked in. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Want to welcome special guest Michael Lombardi uh, to the Pull Up Pod. It's it's a pleasure to have you. And as you guys all know, one of my favorite parts of the the podcast is mentioning the history of guests, some of the statistics, some of the things they've been able to accomplish in their lives. Uh, just uh, get started here. Executive and media analyst um, has been around the block, so to speak, uh, going to Hofstra, went to Hofstra, had a pretty successful career at Hofstra, then takes his talents to UNLV as a recruiting coordinator, San Francisco 49ers from 1984 to 87, Cleveland Browns from 87 to 89, shout out to the dog pound. Cleveland Browns, 89-93 as pro personnel director. Cleveland Browns, director of player personnel, 93-96. Director of pro personnel for the Eagles in 98. Raiders, 98-2007. Back to the Browns, dog pound. And finished up with the New England Patriots from 2014 to 2016. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that he is a three-time Super Bowl champion, has worked with the likes of Al Davis, Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, among many others. Also... You've written a book, Gridiron Genius, a masterclass in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL, and that was published in September, which is one of the best months in the world, September of 2018. Mike is also the host of the GM Shuffle podcast and is a contributor for The Athletic. So without further ado, we want to welcome you to the Pull Up Pod. We appreciate you coming on, man. First and foremost, we have to take it back to the Cleveland Browns days. What has changed the most since you left the Cleveland Browns? What have you seen um, as you watch kind of from afar and as you study the game now that's kind of changed with the Browns organization and franchise? Well, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. You know, I love hoops. I'm a huge hoops fan. I, I love watching. I wish I could honestly say I stay awake for Portland games. But, you know, living on the East Coast, man, it's hard to stay awake for some of those games. But I love it. I went to a Portland game years ago when Bob Witsit was still the GM. The energy in that arena that, that night was incredible. So... I'm a big fan, Jordan, big fan. Appreciate it. Uh, what's changed? You know, really not much. I don't think the owner understands Jimmy Haslam's a tremendous person. Got, you know, a lot of great wealth. I think he listens to a thousand people. I think he just doesn't understand culture wins in any sport. And I think that he's still fighting that culture battle, how to balance collecting talent and building a team, how to balance the right culture with the right players, how to build a team of high character with character players. I think that's always going to be his struggle. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully it'll work out. Look, I'm a Browns fan. My two sons were born right there at uh, in Berea, Ohio. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my heart's always been with Cleveland. I love it. I've been there twice. So I hope they do, do turn it around. 
Michael, I'm curious for you, what's the balance between ownership, general manager, with players in terms of building relationships, creating a family environment, but also knowing that on a whim, you might have to trade somebody. You might have to release somebody. I think the owner needs to always be in good graces with the players. I think he can't be seen as somebody who could be, because they're all emotional, right? You know, you lose a game. We only have 16 in the NFL. If you lose a game, they want to fire everybody. You know, I used to say, when I worked for Art Modell, we'd be lining up for a field goal, and, and if we made the field goal, he would give everybody a 10-year extension. If we missed it, he'd fire everybody. I mean, the emotions of the owners are so dramatic, and I think that the owner needs to be really you know, have a relationship with the players, enjoy the players, and basically just let the coach or the G and the GM kind of be the bad guys, if you will. You know, they're going to run the team. You know, I'm going to advise them. It's in the best interest of the team. I'm all about the team, but I want to be friends. I want to be part of the family network that's the players. And so I think that's the best way. I think the owners are entitled to plausible deniability. I think the owners are entitled to be above the fray of having to take the heat. I think that's why they have paid employees that work for them so they can take it. In that sense, then, is it fair to say that there's nobody more important than the head coach? Nobody's more important than the head coach. I mean, I, you know, basketball is different. Football, it's the head coach talks to the players every single day. He's got 63 of them. You know, and if the players don't think that the head coach can hire or fire them, you're going to have a long year. Because the players have to know who controls their value, who controls their their ability to earn money is predicated on the guy talking to them every day. When I worked at the Raiders, the players knew Al Davis controlled it. So the players really never gave the head coach the due respect he needed because if you were one of Al's scholarship guys, you knew you were going to be there forever. And if you weren't, you know, you could be gone in a day. So I, I'm a big believer. I'm a I'm a personnel guy by trade. But I think the head coach in football has to be the voice of the organization. He has to be the spokesman for the organization. And he has to be the leader of the organization. And it can't be any different. The background is for the, is for the general manager. Now that's a good point you bring up uh, in terms of having a relationship with players. I think in basketball, for me, it's completely different because there's only 15 of us. Obviously, our GM is very involved. Uh, the owner of our organization, uh, the late Mr. Allen, has passed away. And, and since then, his sister has taken over. But we have a relationship with them. But there's no one you're going to be more close with than the head coach, uh, besides the assistant coaches that you're working with from a skilled development standpoint. So I think it's interesting you bring that point up because I think the most successful teams, uh, you look at the players, you look at the Warriors, you look at the Spurs, you look at some of those organizations and, and franchises, obviously those Doc Rivers teams uh, from the Celtics days to now, he had a specific relationship with each individual player. And I think that comfort level, like you said before, there are some teams where you know you're a scholarship player, you know you were brought in by the GM, you know you were brought in by the president. And then there's some organizations to where you have a relationship with your head coach. So there's a trust factor in some, something I brought up um, on some previous podcasts was that Coach Terry does a great job of allowing us to call plays when we see something we like, when we have that freedom to make adjustments. And I think what you just pointed out is the relationship with the head coach, I think it's standard from from all sports, basketball, football, baseball, maybe a little different. But when you have that relationship, I think that that security, that trust, that freedom is everything. It is. And, you know, I mean, it, it needs to be like people think, well, Belichick's a dictator in New England. No, I mean, you come to the sideline and you you talk about something that's important or you're seeing on the field. He's going to listen to you. It, it, it's this gets cloudy. You know, and I'm sure your coach feels the same, Terry feels the same way is like you trust the people that have their heart in it. You know, like I put my blood, sweat and tears in this. And if I think we should run this play, it's because not because I want to score 30 tonight. It's because I want to win tonight, you know, and when you have a culture that's about the name on the front as opposed to the name on the back you become a, a different team. And so that, that, that stream of consciousness from the players to the coach is valid. There's not an ego involved. And when you remove ego and the only thing that matters is winning, then everybody can talk and everybody can have conversations. But too often, you know, like the other night on Monday Night Football, I mean, they're throwing the ball in the end zone so Baker can throw another touchdown pass to Odell. I mean, that's all, that was all self-serving for Odell. It's clear to see. It's clear to see. That just tells you you don't have a culture. That tells you you don't have the things that matter most in winning. And, and even though Odell's a great player, we all know that culture wins over talent every single time because a good team that plays together will always beat a talented team that doesn't. 
you, you brought up a great point, and my next question was going to be about the relationships you've had. You've worked with Al Davis, you've worked with Bill Walsh, you've worked with Bill Belichick, so you've been around winning culture, you've been around systematic success consistently. So my question would be, what type of trends did you notice that the greats have compared to other organizations and people you've worked around, not just in the sports world, but obviously transitioning to radio, transitioning to being a sports analyst? What type of trends that you see like going from you know Al Davis to Bill Belichick that you kind of like use now in your day-to-day life as well I think this CJ I, I, I haven't been in the league over 35 years haven't been around professional athletes I think I say this with with a, a certain degree with a, a high degree of certainty players only respect knowledge and the player it's 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 a profession that really is is without any any prejudice in it. If you can make the players better, players are going to come and gravitate towards you. If you can't, they're not. Your intellectual capacity controls you as a coach. It controls whether players listen to you. Players have a, especially competitive players, they have a thirst for knowledge. They have a thirst for improvement. And if you're 90 years old and you're walking with a cane, but you're smart and can make them better, they're going to listen to you. If you're 14 years old and you're smart and you can make them better, they're going to listen to you. You know, it's all about how you are as a coach. And I think that that's really in every sport. So the to me, that was drilled in me by Walsh. I saw it with Al and really with Belichick. Knowledge creates followers. It creates it in business. It creates it in sports. Obviously, Bill Walsh is is famous for, you know, his his excellence as a coach, but really it's the you know, pursuit of perfection, expecting perfection, but also not chastising players when they're not perfect, when they make a mistake, to be understanding, to learn from a mistake. What are some of the parallels between Bill Walsh and Bill Belichick in that sense? Yeah, I think, I think. look, you have to create a culture that allows mistakes. I mean, the reason when you listen to Belichick's press conference, ah, oh, I screwed that up or I made that mistake, you know, I really blew that, you know, when he takes accountability, he sends a message to the team that he's willing to admit mistakes. That's a powerful tool. If the coach walks in front of the team and says, look, we got to get better, fellas, and then he excludes himself from the conversation, he's going to have few followers. So you got to create a situation where you're willing to admit mistakes. And when you're willing to do that, you're willing to take and learn from your mistakes. Look, I, 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 analytics plays a huge part of what we do in sports, but analytics sometimes becomes a little bit too doctoral study. They want to have it so that it's perfect. Look, give me information that I can utilize and bring in, and then let's see if it works. If it doesn't work, that's great because we know not to do it anymore. Failure is not, is not death. You know, it's we got to try things. And as long as you have an environment where people feel safe in that and Walsh and Belichick created that safe environment, that's a powerful tool. You said something that kind of resonated with me. Failure isn't death. I'm taking notes as you speak, because these are some things that I'm going to kind of use as I go about my own personal life. But I, I agree with everything you said. Players really respect knowledge. That's something that I've, I've become accustomed to as a college athlete and as an NBA player. I've, I've gravitated towards a video coordinator. I've, I've gravitated towards a lot of different people based on their knowledge and, and how they've been able to improve my day-to-day, not only life on the court, but off the court. I think Bill Belichick, he doesn't give out a lot of compliments, but he credited you as you know one of the, one of the forward thinkers in sports. Uh, He said that you were one of the smartest people he's ever worked with and that you were a huge asset and a guy who studies football knows it very well. So I think that knowledge and that respect that he has for you, it stemmed because of your work ethic. It stemmed because of some of the things you've done, not only, you know, in the film room, but behind the scenes. So I guess my question is, how did the Browns change their culture? You talked about some of the, the things that we're trying to do and establish right now individually. Obviously, we have a lot of different personalities, a lot of different players who are elite level talent, but haven't exactly brought it together yet. So how do we get over that hump? How how does Baker, you know, kind of keep everybody in line? How does Odell, you know, t- taper, but still be as successful as he wants to be on the court, but taper some of the personality so that everybody can kind of get along and, and the culture can kind of stabilize? I think Jimmy Haslam has to say to John Dorsey, look, this is the kind of team I want. This is what I really believe in. This is who I am. You know, I've started Pilot Flying J when it was nothing and when it was just Pilot. And I bought Flying J, which allowed me to buy the Browns. This is who I want to be. Before I got fired, 
two weeks before I got fired, Jimmy Haslam asked me to write a, a manifesto on what I thought it would take to build a successful organization within the uh, for Cleveland. I spent two weeks on the manifesto. I got fired three days after I gave it to him. I guess he didn't appreciate it. So uh, the reality here is you have to. It has to be built from within. It's got to be come from him. If if you want to take certain kind of players, just tell us who do you want to be, and then step aside. Watch it and build it, and then we'll let it grow. And give the people that run this organization some teeth to be able to put a culture in place. I mean, I write this for the daily. I write a daily coach column every single day with George Radling, one of the greatest human beings of all time. And we talk a lot about culture on this daily email at the Daily Coach, and and we talk about why culture matters, why it's important that you have people that are behaving in the same way, pointing in the same direction. And until you get there. You know, look, the U.S. hockey team, people don't realize this, the U.S. hockey team played the Russians two weeks before at Madison Square Garden. It was a sold-out event. The score was 10 to 3. We got killed by the Soviet Union. Two weeks later in Lake Placid with Al Michaels on the mic, do you believe in miracles? We won 4-3. So, you know, it, they came together as a team. And that culture can be created, but it starts, really, it starts with the owner. What would you tell then to, to Baker, um, Mike, in terms of, his leadership role and harnessing some of that swagger that makes him great, but also we see it um, get out of line sometimes. I guess Odell's the same, where you just yeah, it's all out of line. I mean, look, yeah. they got you know he's one year in the league and he's doing commercials. Right. You know, like 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 look, look CJ, you, you know, you make enough money, you don't need the commercial. You know, you don't need Lowe's home improvement check. You you need it. We need to win first, then do all the commercials you want to do. I think I would tell him, look, focus on getting everybody better. We got to stay in the moment. We got to stay in the moment because you know why? We are the hunted ones. I call the Browns this year the Virgil Salazzo of the NFL. The Virgil Salazzo was a character in The Godfather that made a move on The Godfather. He wanted to be a partner with them, and The Godfather said, no, no, no. And then he tried to kill The Godfather, and now he went from being the guy who was wanted to be a partner to be in the hunted one being the hunted one's a lot different you can't sneak up on anybody nobody's going to take you lightly you know when it used to be years ago a couple years ago the browns everybody took lightly we're playing the browns this week no big deal now everybody wants a piece of the browns now everybody wants a shot at the browns everybody wants to validate themselves you know the browns are on national tv not the rams they went to the super bowl there's always a different narrative and i would tell baker that we have to focus it's going to be really hard because the last eight minutes of every single game we play from now until the end of the year are going to be the hardest eight minutes of our life and if we're not ready to battle in those eight minutes we're not going to win hey, you brought up a great point and and that's something i fought as a young player in the league i wanted to establish uh, a career in journalism. And that, that's something I made a vocal point early on, being a journalism major at Lehigh University. I told my agency that uh, I wanted to kind of build my portfolio so that when I retired, I already had a body of work in place. But then I fractured my foot on the last day of training camp. So I'm not playing, and I have a radio show with Series X and Radio, doing a rookie diary on my season. So it was conflicting for me because I was trying to work on myself as a, as a person. You know, trying to build my build my resume for when I retire. There's 24 hours in a day. I was figuring out how to balance it. But then I started turning stuff down on the side because I didn't like the perception of a guy who's hurt as a rookie player with a lot of stuff going off the court. So I ended up turning down podcast offers seven years ago. I was offered to do a podcast six years ago. I turned it down because I hadn't established myself in the league, and I thought that it would be frowned upon if I was talking about sports, talking about things I enjoy daily, and not being considered one of the best 5, 10, 20 players at my position, let alone players in the NBA. You fast forward three years later, the podcast deal comes to me again, and I had just won uh, Most Improved Player of the Year. I was establishing myself as a guy who could you know, hold his own consistently and be a star in this league, and I decided to do the podcast. But I think that's it's a hard balance for young players in this league, and not just the NBA, but all leagues, because you want to build a brand for yourself. You want to take advantage of your likeness. You want to make as much money as possible because you never know when it's going to end. But at the same time, it does become time-consuming. There are production days. There are things that kind of distract you from the ultimate goal. And a good friend of mine, Coach David Vanderpool, who's no longer uh, a part of our organization, is now with the Minnesota Timberwolves. He used to always tell me, if you're not making shots, if you're not good at your job, no one's going to want to listen to you on the radio. So perfect this first. And then it doesn't matter how good you are, people are going to want to listen because they like you as a player. That's so right. I think yeah. like what you're saying is right. Baker's going to be a great player in this league for a long time. He's going to make a lot of money. Quarterbacks are getting paid 
almost 80, 90%, almost 100% guaranteed dollars. So if he becomes as good as possible for the Cleveland Browns and, and takes us to the promised land, gets us 10 wins, gets us a division, a chance at a division title, he'll be on every commercial that there is under the sun and he won't have to worry about uh, doing the Lowe's uh, improvement commercials. No doubt. Three Super Bowls has a book out, hosted podcast, a man of many traits, has worked with a lot of different greats. Michael Lombardi, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, guys. We want to thank all of you for listening to the Pull Up Pod. Continue to like, subscribe, comment, follow the grams, the Twitters. We posted the wine. Oh, great Links response. in the bio. Great response. Yeah, that was fun. Some reasonable prices, and we'll continue to do that as the season progresses. Uh, you can listen to us on radio.com backslash pull up Apple or wherever you get your 75 podcast. pods bro it's crazy 75 yeah, as the saying goes don't forget to pull up, pull up. <laughs>